You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. I love getting into their life journey and not just talking about these shiny moments. This is with the hopes that you can feel better about yourself, get out of your own way, see that you're not too late, you're not too early, to trust the timing of your life, and also to see that your feelings of being enough, worthy, successful, fulfilled are not out there somewhere, but you can claim them every single day. Sometimes you got to do it every moment of the day. On today's episode, I have Dr. Zelena Momini. She's a positive psychologist, a behavioral scientist, She's a prominent figure in positive psychology and has been on lots of media as their expert, including Access Hollywood, The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors, lots more. And we get into her journey as to why this became her path, what her life was like growing up, and um, yeah, getting into media and more. Listen to the episode if you haven't yet follow the podcast. They call it following now instead of subscribe. There's like a little plus sign when you go to claim it. If you can hit that, that's awesome. And also, please, if you haven't let, leave a review. Spotify now allows you to do ratings. You can give me a five star. And also on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a review. Those mean a lot to me and to help podcasts get more discovered so that we can have more people claiming it out into the world. If you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourdrologist.com and I'll send you a gift from my product line. All right, let's get into the episode. Hi, I love hearing first about how you grew up. You can talk about earlier childhood, especially like if there's things formative in that, but I really like diving into the teenage years because this is sort of, I think there's so much pressure on people of like, what are you going to do with your life? And what are you going to grow up and be? And like this idea that we're going to pick one thing and be it for the rest of our lives. And so I like just starting there. Like what was life like for you in teenage years? Did you have any ideas of what you wanted to do? Or did you have any like pressure from parents or whatever? Like this is what the path you should take. I love this question. Um, Yes. So I grew up, I think it's important for context that to know that I grew up, I'm first generation. So my parents and sister immigrated from Russia in the 70s. And I was the first person in my immediate family to be born in the States. I was born in San Diego. And I think, you know, I think just that cultural background gave me a lot of, you know, so much benefit and complexity. And and I love the fact that I come from an immigrant family and I have that, you know, sort of work ethic and all of that. I think with that comes, you know, just a focus on academics and education and certain ideas of what children should be and do. I think, you know, my parents were actually I would say probably they skew like more open on the spectrum of like following your passions and and what it is that you enjoy. But I think there was always definitely an expectation that, you know, doing great is not good enough and excelling is really the only way to, to function and to do well in life. I think, you know, their definition of success as I was growing up was very much anchored on you know, their experience of the world and immigration and coming to America and having visions of what that would do for their children and what, you know, resources I would have because of that um, for me and my sister. And, you know, and I get it. So, you know, for me, it was like, 
you're going to become X, Y, Z. Um, and yes, you know, I also had a passion for singing and dance and all these other things, which I also did. But, you know, if I did something, it was the expectation was that I would really excel at it. So playing piano was one thing, but I would also, you know, it's not just okay to play piano. Like I was doing competitions. I was, you know, playing Bach when I was like 10. Part of me now looking back, I appreciate that perspective. I do think that sometimes it's easy to go through the motions and not really like push yourself. But I also think that that's a lot of pressure, of course, for for children. And, you know, there's a happy medium um, amidst all of that. So I think, you know, in my teenage years, I, I had a vision of wanting to be a doctor. And um, I, I was kind of torn between like wanting to advocate for people as a lawyer or wanting to be a doctor, but I knew I was going to help somehow. Um, I just didn't exactly know how. And then I started really um, being curious about human behavior and what makes people behave different ways, even though they experienced similar things. So I kind of was always curious about that, wanting to tease that out. And was that already in high school? Yeah, I was really in high school. It was even like earlier than that. I would, I would say even like middle school. I was always like the one who would, you know, come in in a situation, even if it wasn't necessarily a friend or more of like an acquaintance if someone was having a really hard time. I think I'm definitely an, an empath and I could tell if kids came to school with them were having a bad day. And I was also bullied. And I write about that in my book. I was bullied um, severely in junior high. And so I think having that experience of being bullied and coming out of that, and I I was just really always curious about what would make someone do that to someone else. So I approached it from like a very, I mean, it was definitely deeply painful, but for some reason I was able to hold on to that, like what makes her behave like that? Like, what is she really going through? And it's actually a fascinating story, the whole thing. And I, I do talk about it in my book, but she was in a lot of pain. The girl that was bullying you. Yeah. And of course, like at that age, you don't know that you don't talk about it. Nobody, you know, but she was being severely abused. And um, that was her way of, you know, using, I guess I was an easy target. And, you know, it. it's just, it's it's all really fascinating. So from that, it was like, why do people do that? It was always like the why. Got it. No, that makes, you know, like sense that especially after having that experience and it brings your attention more to that. Right. And I I think I always, you know, I, I realized early on that our perception of the world really is how our world sort of turns out, that our behavior isn't just in this vacuum. Like we behave a certain way based on how we perceive our circumstances. And I think I was always really acutely aware of that, especially, and I do think having that cultural background of having this like intense sort of Russian upbringing um, and and that, you know, the world is a certain way and we got to do this, this, and this to succeed and that perspective and then seeing being an American child and seeing how other people kind of think about the world and have a a different perception of things and how they choose to behave. I think that really helped sort of set the foundation of my interest in psychology. When you, uh, earlier you were saying you love being part of an immigrant family. Did you feel that way growing up as well? Definitely. Did you 
you know, if your family had just moved from Russia, also, I guess you have a couple of things going for you. It's like, oh, at least your skin color is, you know, like you don't stand out as much as being other or different. But at the same time, I'm guessing there were ways that you felt like, or did you not? Totally. And that's a, that's a really great point. I mean, I think that I definitely didn't feel as other as my sister might have because they moved when she was 12. And so she had oh, to go wow. to school where they really didn't have the resources like, you know, for, for new clothes or like, and all her friends would wear new, you know, so it's like new car, like it was a very different world for her than her first language was probably Russian. Yeah. So she had to learn English, like coming here. My first language is actually Russian too. Right. But I'm guessing more exposure to English or the importance of learning it than if she were going to grow up in her. Exactly. So like when I went to preschool and kindergarten, I spoke Russian the first three or three years of my life. And then I would easily pick up English because you're just in it. Whereas she had to really like, you know, learn it. I think that, you know, I, I was always aware that my parents spoke with an accent that, you know, there were, there were cultural traditions and things that we did that were different than my peers, but definitely it wasn't like you could look at me and tell that I was, you know, from an immigrant family as much as like, it was just an internal sort of ethos that I had to kind of, you know, just come to terms with. And, and, you know, I think as a teenager and especially as like a preteen, there were moments where I thought, Oh, I wish I could just like be like everybody else. Right. And then as you grow all of those different facets of who you are, and especially I can only speak about my own experience, but they were actually like, I really came to appreciate the, the accent and the learning and the struggle and the, you know, the, the success stories and the, um, the determination and all of that. And probably you see that, yeah, as you get older, that everybody, no matter what they look like, if they look like they, yeah, blonde boys, right. everybody speaks the language that everybody is in some way wishing that they 100%. were different, fit in more, were whatever, <laughs> like that we all have. <laughs> totally, exactly. So no, it, it, and that's so true. And you just don't, you know, as a kid, you're spared from all of that and you have visions of what you think you should, could, you know, and then it's like you come, you, you grow up, you're like, wait, everyone has a story. Oh, and so you were saying you were thinking about, yeah, doctor or lawyer. And were those ideas that you from general, like, oh, I really want to do big work and help? Or were those sort of like things that were implanted as great career options for you from your family? Good question. I think it was a little bit of both. I do think that I knew I always wanted to help. And as a kid, you don't exactly know like what the career paths are for helping. Like I didn't know about social work until I went to grad school, right? I didn't know that that was even an option. I just knew that being a doctor was an option, right? To help. So yes, I think that doctor, lawyer, you know, all those are like the big, the bigs, especially in these, you know, my Russian family, like that was sort of encouraged and projected. But I do think that, you know, I took a stab at the doctor piece. I did internships. Um, and I, I do love medicine. I do still, I consider myself a scientist. Um, and I started to go the pre-med route and then I pivoted because once I was in it, um, and this was pre-grad school, this was still. So when you left high school, you were like, okay, I'm going to go into medicine. In high school, I was already interning at, yeah, at medical facilities. And wow, in high school. Yeah, no, I was like, okay, how do I like figure out, you know, what it is that interests me? And, you know, and and that was partly driven by my, my family, you know, certainly, I mean, it's like, if you, 
if you want to be something, you have to figure out, you know, what route you want to take and you have to do what it takes to get there and be successful at it. So it wasn't just an option to like, you know, go to college and kind of figure it out then (laughs) because in their mind, it's like probably at that point too late. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, in some ways it's like, wow, that's a lot. But then it's like, well, yeah, it makes sense. If no, it's like, well, no, find out if you want to really, you're going to do something so that you can be the best at it. Otherwise, like why bother? Is it that sort of like, which is kind of amazing. Like it feels a bit like, oh, but then like, well, yeah, actually that's great. Yeah. <laughs> like you want to be doing something you're really passionate about. It. And that's what I'm saying. Like as a kid, you're like, oh my God, this is a lot of pressure. Like I'm doing a lot. But, but then as a, as an adult, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you know, drive. And I appreciate the exposure, like the early exposure to things made me realize what direction I want to take. Now, my career has taken many different paths than what I initially expected. Right. It's like, even with all of that, (laughs) but I think that, you know, it's really important that I did all those things because I realized like in my internship, I, I worked at a hospital for a few months over the summers. And I realized, you know, I didn't want to just focus on the body. And I realized that the body is affected so much by our emotional and mental well-being. And I I noticed that a lot of doctors, and there's great doctors and there's not so great doctors, right? There's a spectrum. And some great doctors do talk about mental health and do talk about emotional well-being as part of their physical treatment of symptoms, right? But I felt like that was really undervalued and not focused on enough. And and that's kind of when it all started bubbling up in me that I really wanted to focus on helping people with their mental and emotional health. And so for me, I was like, okay, great. So I'll keep the medical route, but I'll go into psychiatry. But then see, thankfully, because of, you know, my background, I started to dabble in psychiatry at an early age before I made that choice to become a psychiatrist. So is this still even you're in high school? Yeah, this is like later on in high school. This wow. is like early years college. Yeah, this is this is high school. And then I realized I don't even want the option to prescribe medicine. And that for me was like the the fork in the road because there are so many mental health issues that do require medication. And I'm not saying that medication is bad. I am a huge proponent of taking the medication that you need. And I'm so thankful to medicine that medication exists to help us with our mental health issues. For me personally, I wanted to go a different route and let my colleagues take care of the, the, you know, the medical aspect of psychiatry and psychology and just deal with the cognitive behavioral therapy and the mindfulness work that I was ultimately going to end up doing. And so at that point, you know, I just knew that I didn't want to prescribe medicine and I didn't want to go to medical school. So that was like a huge, like, what? You're not going to medical school? (laughs) You know, big family discussion, but ultimately that's the choice I made. And in college, you know, I majored in psychology and I worked in the psychology department. I did research with my professors in psychology and that's, that's what led me to my clinical psychology path. And what was your family like supportive or were they at first like, no, because it in some way feel like, oh no, if you're going to do the best of the best of the best, then that would be the like the thing that takes the longest. So it's not even like you want to be able to do all the things. Yeah, no, I mean, I think for sure it was definitely like a letdown just because I don't even think they knew the options. Like I think in their mind, it was either, you know, medicine, 
lawyer or business, you know, it's like those were, so I, I don't even think they thought through it. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I, I have to give them credit. I mean, they just, they sort of let go and they, I don't think they were happy about it, but I think they just, it is what it is. Right. And, and you have to let go. And, and, and I'm thankful that, that I did go with my gut and I had the strength to stick with, with what I felt internally was the right path for me. And what, um, you, so you went to school for psychology, but then you must have done much more schooling, right? Cause yeah. So is that, do you think part of, is that, was that your natural wanting to, or is that st- maybe still instilled with you? Like if you hadn't had the background you had of like, keep going, be the best of the best, like, would you have continued studying, getting more degrees? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a really good question. Cause what is it? First of all, cause you can gra- get a psychology degree and that, is that a regular so, like no, four so year? You, yeah. So, you, well, you get your bachelor's, bachelor and in psychology. Major, major in psychology. And then in order to actually, you know, work with practice, you could, yeah. So then usually people go for their master's and then it's like, you could be an MFT, like a master's in family therapy and you could still, you could work with people still then. Right. So everyone who is working as a psychologist has to have their master's. Yes. Yes. Usually if you're called a psychologist. Which makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Usually if you have the label of psychologist, you have a doctorate in psychology. So you have a doctorate of psychology, which is a PsyD, or you're a doctorate in psychology. So it's like a PhD and it's the specialization is in psychology and PhDs do a bit more research. I mean, they also do clinical work, but I really wanted to go the route of, of a clinician. Which is working with- With people. Right. So you could either be re- where you're just doing, I'm not, not trying to not use the word just so much. You are doing- research and research and thing and then clinical as you are actually working with clients. Is that right? Yeah. And again, I credit my family for that perspective too, because I tried both. I, I love the research aspect of psychology. I think it's critical and I think it's more as needed. Um, I love that, but I also really realized within my research work when I was working at UCLA and doing research that I really want to work with people. I want to have face time with people and you know, there's so many things you can do as a psychologist and that, you know, that's, that's the route I took. But there were many times through the course of my career that I had the option to take a different path. And I stuck with knowing that I wanted to get that doctorate because I knew that that would offer the opportunities that I wanted to take advantage of in my life. And that's sort of what I went for. So, you know, the, I I had the opportunity to go into the media world um, early on. I think it was like right before I finished my master's and had some incredible mentors who are very well known in the industry who told me that I don't have to finish school, that I could easily not finish school and still be, you know, a voice in the mental health space and still do media work and still do great things, um, but that I really didn't have to finish and that I shouldn't, and that I should really invest all my time in like the media work and the media training. And I really stuck to my gun. Wow. Interesting. So that would be, that'd be even like, oh, you know, a show is like, oh, let's get a thing from our expert, you know, like, or something like that, where it's like, so you can call you an expert. So they're not, you know, actually, that's so interesting. Cause yeah, you would want those bits and things to be coming from people that probably have been further educated. (laughs) But how many people do we follow online, for example, or like on social media that we really take their voice like seriously and like 
you know, they are the like the end all be all to like how we make decisions, right? And yet when you look at their credentials, like they really don't have any in that particular space. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't know what they're talking about or that they haven't spent their whole life researching. Again, it's not to say that just because you have credentials, you know what you're talking about either, right? But for me personally, I can only speak to my experience. Like that was really important to me. That's how I knew that I would get enough schooling under my belt to really be able to then go forth and and have the the foundation from which to speak from in a knowledgeable way. Did you have a desire, like, yeah, if that opportunity had come later, and maybe it has come later too, like, was it more for you, like, oh, yeah, I'd be happy to share on media and stuff, but I personally want to make sure I have this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my, my education has always anchored my work. I've done a lot of stuff in the media world. I continue to do stuff in the media world. Um, but, and, you know, I'm writing my books and all of that, but that to me, you know, the, the academic component of my work is important to me to have that. And, and, you know, to me, like nothing really replaces hearing from a variety of, professors and reading all the books you need to read and doing all the the work that you need to do to get to that doctoral level. Like you can't, it's hard to replicate. I mean, you can have all the clinical real life experience in the world, but sometimes you're not going to get that breadth of perspective um, unless you really do the work that, you know, the, the full, the full spectrum. And what was, what is that the, to get the doctor? Like but the, how much more? Uh, oh, so it was, I, so uh, let's see. So I did four years and then it's like two years for the master's and then three or four more years for the doctorate. Wow. But there's also, I did a program where it was somewhat combined. So I was able to combine my master's and then write my dissertation and do my, um, my doctoral work. And then after that, some people even choose to, to be like certified and board certified in different states, you also have to complete a certain amount of clinical hours that are unpaid. And it's like a ton of hours um, <laughs> to then be able to qualify to be a licensed um, psychologist in the state. So that I chose not to do because of my, uh, that I knew very clearly that for me personally, that was not the path that I wanted to take and that I wasn't going to have a full-blown clinical practice that relied on my um, licensure. So for me, that was not, I wouldn't say an easy decision, but it was um, a decision that I took weighing all the variables, but knowing that, you know, I don't need to be licensed in order to do the work that I need to do as a doctor of psychology. Got it. And so when all of that was done at being in school for so long, what is that immediately then do you have to like, are you able to just, did you start your own practice or is it like here? You know, I'm guessing you have to do so many like different internship and whatever sort of not internships, but yeah, what yeah. do they call it? Like yeah. clinical hours or um, practicum work and all this. Yeah. You do that also as part of your doctoral program, but, and depending again on what path you want to take, it, it, it's all variable, but diff, you know, most doctoral programs require a certain amount of clinical hours and practicums. Um, and uh, I did some work at Cedars for that uh, during my uh, doctoral work and um, UCLA. And, and then after that, yeah, I mean, you have your doctorate and then you decide, you know, what path you want to take. Um, at that point, I had already been doing media work and went more full time into that spectrum and also was doing research and um, doing clinical work 
and, and coaching work. So, you know, the, the way that I sort of saw, there was a point in my doctoral career where I started to really be excited about the ability for us to focus on people's strengths versus just what problems you have and what your pathologies are and what's wrong with you. So instead of approaching a patient or a client, I would say, you know, as like, okay, you know, you're suffering from depression, you're suffering from this, this, and this, it's more about like, okay, you have these symptoms, but you're really, really good at this, this, and this. And let's, so it was, you know, right around when positive psychology was coming to a head. And I was really excited about researching happiness and optimism and its connection with longevity and all of these really positive outcomes. So I think, you know, midway through, I realized I wasn't going to be a traditional clinician and that I really wanted my work to be to be different and to be focused on strengthening potential skill, skill, working, skill building and things like that. And so you did start like um, offering like supporting people. And so, yeah, since you don't have a degree or, well, no, you had degrees, but yes, but because I have a doctorate, I wasn't licensed in the state of California. Got it. But you sort of people about that. did it as coaching. Yeah. Well, of- and, and for me calling myself, I, I mean, I'm a psychologist technically, but you know, calling myself a mental fitness coach was much more in line with my way of thinking about my clients. But I also, also using that terms then lets the people that are coming to want to work with you, like give them just even just how you're saying that a different perspective on what it would be like to work with you. A hundred percent. Like my clientele early on was very clear that our work together was not going to be long-term, that it was going to be short-term, very tool-based, very much in the sense that they would walk away with skills and that they would not have to be alone in their suffering, that they would walk away empowered, having grown and having learned things so that when they face the same or different obstacles, they can, they know what tools to pull out of their toolkit to manage effectively and efficiently. Me, Trisha, bring you a brief interruption to tell you to go immediately to check out Blissoma Skincare, B L I. S-S-O-M-A. Go to blissoma.com. Trust me, you want this brand in your life. One of my favorite products is the Restore Omega Miracle Facial Oil. It's a masterpiece of nutritious oils to keep a huge range of skin types glowing and supple. Honestly, it feels like magic. And that's just, you know, what I think, but that's the feedback they've gotten to so many other people. In fact, it was requested on set for Elle Fanning while working on Maleficent 2. It's 10 plus oils, cold pressed and refined from rare seeds. It has a clarifying and calming effect. It is not too heavy. It is perfect and provides a youthful, plumped appearance. So that's just one of the products that I love. You can go and they even have a quiz that you fill out that gives you what the products they most recommend for your skin. They also are about like more simplicity. So they're not like you need a seven step skincare. They, you know, even the owner herself, Julie has been on a previous episode and she said, your skin might only need one product. 
They're all about making the best products for your skin that actually heal and not just trying to like make you buy more and more and more and confuse you like so much of skincare and capitalism and consumerism can. It's truly authentic green beauty, cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Go check it out, Lysoma Skincare. And I believe if you go to their website and sign up for their newsletter, they'll give you a free sample of their free, that's the name of it, rejuvenating herbal gel cleanser and makeup remover. I absolutely love this cleanser too. I don't know about you, but I don't really like, I'm not usually excited to wash my face, but it feels so good on my skin and my skin feels so good afterwards that I actually get excited to clean my face. And wipe away the makeup and the day and the grime. All right, go check out blissoma.com. So you're saying you were still in the program to finish to get your doctorate? No, this was after. This was after. Okay, I thought you said that you were, while you were still doing one of no, the no, programs no, that you started off of coaching. After. Got it. Okay, but you were doing media work. During- yeah, I was doing media work and then I was doing, I, I, I was doing a lot more media work after as well. And was that, did you end up trying to do the same sort of, you know, what you're trying, wanted to do already getting out of the gate with the coaching with when you would do media work that try to make it be more yes positive or tool-based yes. or whatever? Yeah. Well, and I was already at that point researching happiness and I was researching, you know, different variables um, in the mental health space. And so, you know, at that point, you know, I knew my career was going to be positive psychology based. And then later on, as I did the work and, and, and started, you know, doing talks and, and speaking engagements and, and being an expert in, in, on TV in different places, the more I spoke to clients, the more I spoke to groups of people, I realized that our obsession with happiness is really making us miserable. And so <laughs> I started, you know, really trying to dig deep and figure out what is it then that propels like humanity, like what, what makes us what is the conveyor belt to contentment? If it's not happiness per se, like what, what is it? And and that's where my whole uh, focus on resilience came from. And is that ideology of trying to figure that out? Is that what motivated you to write a book or did that come later? No, that's what motivated me for sure. It was what motivated me. I mean, I... And did you always think like, I'll write a book? Or was it more like you had this thought, like, what is it that everybody's, you know, like, why are people so obsessed? And then like yourself just figuring it out, then being like, okay, I need to like share this. Well, I think it was a a dual, like if I'm being brutally honest about it, I think, you know, there was, I didn't like grow up thinking I was going to write a book. But I think that, you know, years prior to writing a book, there was a lot of talk kind of planting that seed, like you need to write a book or like, Oh my God, I wish this was a book. And, you know, so I would like talk to groups or I would do something on TV and they're like, wait, you really need to like write this down, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I think the more and more that seed was planted, I started to believe that I actually could. And then, and it kind of went from there. Now I had already had, I'm trying to think in the spectrum of time, I had already had our first child by then. And so the Genesis, the book actually was, I wrote the book I think it was while I was pregnant with our second. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. And and it it published right when I had her or right, like right after I had her, our second uh, child, we have three, but um, so it was like all happening at once, but I knew that that was sort of, it had like the book 
had to happen. And it came out of me just like any other birth, you know, and it's a long process, but it was, um, it was something that I, I wanted and needed to write. And that, so all the things to, when you, have you ever then, I guess, not had like the traditional, uh, practice? Oh yeah. I, I you have, I currently don't have a clinical practice. And so, and then there's been many years where I haven't had a clinic. I mean, I, I, but you have like, no, I like that even more that it's like, yeah, sometimes I do. And sometimes like, you know what I hear <laughs> there about, I would say like five years ago or so. I mean, I take clients on, um, very few because I know the time commitment that it's going to, you know, that, that I can take on and for a short period of time. So I will occasionally take on private clients, but it, it really um, isn't the bulk of what my career is based on. And is that, but I mean, when you're even talking about that, the clinical practice or, or whatever, um, or having the clients, like, is that still what you were talking about originally where it's more like in your coaching format or is it still like, oh, I'm going to go, let me, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still in my sort of CBT, like my my cognitive behavioral type of therapy and it's still very much mindfulness based and it's still very much coaching style for sure. But like, so yeah, I mean, a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm looking for someone then I guess, yeah, most people when they're going to look for a psychologist or a therapist that it's sort of like, they don't have a date for it of like when it'll end. It's like, we see them until you feel like you're better, which could be 10 years from now. Totally. <laughs> I totally. And I think the conversation with my clients, and it's it's funny, like if you were to talk to them, I mean, nobody, I never said like, by this date, you're out. <laughs> but, but the work that we do is very intense. And also, they themselves are like, whoa, I don't, I don't think I need to see you anymore. Like, no offense, but like, I'm good now. Like I need to, I need to like do this work on my own. I need to kind of like simmer with this. And so there's like a natural evolution to this. And it's, it's pretty awesome. Like I just, you know, it's like, it kind of has a life of its own. Um, but that's just the nature I think of the work. I don't think it would work if it was long-term because it is very intense and it's, it's, it's hard, but it's, the idea is that I don't want people to necessarily need me. Like I want to be, I want to become the voice in their head. And I, I teach people how to think, not what to think. Love that. And I get it. I mean, I'm not, I have not studied psychology, but just I have offered coaching yeah. for a decade. And I only work with people in like a more like intensive way for sure. And that's like, okay, we can have following sessions, but like, so it's totally different uh, in many ways. Uh, but yeah, like I, I totally get what you're saying. And also, I think like, again, it's sort of like, you're not saying like, oh, you're going to cut off by this day. You're never going to talk to me about it again. But like, no, no, no. but it is like sort yeah. of people that know when they go to work to, with you, that it's not the traditional, well, I every Tuesday at two for until whatever, and, <laughs> until I choose to not talk to you anymore, which again, could be like in five years. No, and I'm very, very upfront about that. And if that's the kind of therapy that they need or are looking for, there's plenty of amazing people out there who do that kind of therapy and where they can go and, and sit and talk about stuff for, you know, an hour or 50 minutes and then be done and then have that be like a weekly kind of exchange. Um, my work is very different. Are there things that um, throughout your career and doing the different varieties of the way that you've been getting your work out in the world, like, what are some like lessons that you learned or sort of, you know, or things where you're like, okay, yeah, that was something I thought I wanted to do and then did it. Or, you know, maybe I did because people told me I should do and then realized that it wasn't for me or like, you know, just sort of like things that you can look back and like share lessons from. Um, gosh, I think that 
I think it's hard to be an expert in a field in social media, in the social media world. I think that, you know, I think I was really taken aback when I was talking to publishers and one of their first questions like had nothing to do with my credentials, but how many followers do I have? And like, what, what platforms do I have? It made me realize that there's this whole like behind the scenes that I don't know about. And I probably don't even want to know about because I just want to pretend I don't know about because <laughs> it makes me, it concerns me. And, you know, it also like, I, there's so many benefits to social media because it, it gets the word out and it it is helpful to a lot of people um, in the mental health space, especially. So, you know, I have a, a love hate relationship with it, but it, it was very surprising to me that a lot of the work now is, is, you know, based on like followers. And what does that even mean? No, I totally get that. I mean, yeah, my first book comes out in a couple months. But yeah, like, so I had to learn the whole, yeah. That's a whole other, yeah. But I had to learn the whole thing. Yeah, just getting even, would you even get considered to have an agent or whatever? And I don't have that, like, but yeah, it is all like, well, we just need to see your numbers. And so that, yeah, like, when you're understanding that, but also seeing like, right, but um, what if people have really amazing things to say that can change the world and they're not like... And they're discounted <laughs> because they don't spend a lot of time on social media and haven't... Or they spend a lot of time on social media and it just hasn't, you know, right. or taken the off or something too. Like yeah, there's also like, that, but or there's people that, yeah, like aren't even on social media. Or the algorithm <laughs> isn't in their favor. Like I started social yeah. media super late in the game because I was working for a media company that... Um, you know, we were focused on building that media company, not my own personal brand. And I did, you know, on camera and behind this, like behind the camera work for them. Um, and it was great. And we built up their video content and I, I spoke about mental health and all different stuff, but it, it just like, wasn't on my radar to do my own thing and to build up my own name. And then all of a sudden it was like, wait, I need to be doing this. And by that time, the algorithm had already skewed And it was like, it was tougher, you know, to be on everyone's feet. So anyway, it was like, yeah, that was a learning curve. But, um, and it still is because I really, I don't like pausing my life to post. And it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough balance. I'm not a poster. Like I don't like to post about personal me. Like I don't like to post pictures of my family. I don't like to post pictures of myself. I do a lot of quotes um, and I do a lot of content of that nature, which I love. And I love creating a community that finds all of that worthwhile. But, you know, a lot of people are like, you should post about yourself and you should, you know, you know, post highlights of like your day and this and that. And it just feels so disingenuous to me, but I'm not like dishonoring what other people do and the other, the choices people make, but it's just not something that I'm, I'm made out for. Yeah, no, I get it. And I even think like some of my favorite people to follow, I love like I watch their stories and they're showing their glimpses with their kids and the this and what they're feeding and stuff like that. So it's so interesting because stuff that people that I love follow that share all that stuff and then I have no desire. Because <laughs> sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'll share more of like, and I don't because I will some use stories and stuff, but it's usually again, like I'm sharing about like, oh, this or aha, I'm like, use, you know, like sharing a tool or a this or I had a low and that or like, you know, or about something I'm going on, but I'm not like, like, it's so funny because in many ways I share so much, like on the podcast, like whatever, like I'm so sharing, but at the same time, I also am very private in different ways. <laughs> no, but I love that about you. And I think that that's what makes you so relatable. Um, and I wish I could do, I wish I was good at that, to be perfectly honest. Well, I'm super open and vulnerable. If you were to ask me questions, I will answer honestly and openly. You know what I mean? Like, 
I'll tell the world anything, but it has to be like a question coming from someone versus just like me kind right. of shooting my stuff into this like universe. Like it just, I don't know. It just, it, to me, per- I wish I was better at it. <laughs> Well, but that's what I was just saying. It's sort of like, I think that, yeah, I just trust what feels best for me. And that even though I, like I said, I enjoy taking in content when people are sharing this other way, like that, that doesn't feel right for me. And this is what I do. And that's okay. And that, yeah, I've had to like, just not worry about algorithms or numbers. And it's just like, yeah, of course, I would love for that post to be seen by more people. But I can't like have the energy to stress about that stuff. And I know there's things you can do to learn about the algorithm and these things. And I'm just like, I don't, that's not where I'm investing my money or time to hire people to do that for me or for me to spend my time. I know. But unfortunately, it's the world we straddle. So it's like, you know, but hey, you know, whatever it takes to help and to create a community that focuses on, you know, evolution and growth. That's that's where I'm at. So yes, I devote some time to social media, but it's like for that purpose. Um, but I think that I think that was one of my my bigger sort of surprises. Um, and also not to anchor my worth in other people's reaction um, of my narrative. Like I have my thoughts and belief system and It could be very different from someone else's and I'm okay with that, you know, but I think that takes time and that takes, that takes age and growth and whatever healing someone needs to do to get to that point. You know, I think we all sort of question ourselves and I think, you know, I'm okay. I I, I welcome disagreements, but I also like, don't take it really personally either anymore. So I think there's like a a learning curve there too. I think there's definitely a learning curve in yeah, like age there. It's like even, you know, I think parts of me got that many years ago. But yeah, at the same time, it's like more and more. So like, okay, okay, I can let that roll off my back a little bit more like not, you know, of just yeah, because it gets harder and harder in some ways. But at the same time, it gets easier of like, okay, right. I don't not everybody has to agree with me. Not everybody has to see things my way and not even agree with you. But just like, understand that that's where you're coming from or something like I grew up so much like wanting to like be heard in that way like no I just like I remember being at the dinner table and it would be like shut up like I just wanted to be like but I'm telling you that I did that because of this like I wasn't even trying to get out of trouble or whatever I just have always had this inner desire to like explain yourself (laughs) there's what it was and so it's like I've now like that's something that it was like now realizing I don't know. It's like I don't always it's okay. Like and even if I know that that person's not going to understand me, I still would have the urge to like explain myself. And it's like it's not always worth it. And it's, you know, like, yeah, okay, I don't actually have to explain. Sometimes you just have to sit with it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that's like was a harder thing for me. It's like it's like I don't even want to like win them over. It's just like. Tell, let me tell you my 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 side. Or like, interesting, interesting. And is that because you felt like sorry not to dig, but like not to go for it? Well, but is that because you felt like silenced as a kid, or just it's like an internal? Well, I think for sure. I think a lot goes back to that, like shut up, like where I didn't really feel like heard. Like my biggest, and that's the thing. Like I have so much care, so much love. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah, there wasn't a lot of space for that and a lot of shut up and like, yeah, emotional, there wasn't much space for emotional. (laughs) And that's the case for a lot of families, for sure. Yeah, which I now feel like it was just sort of like, because how they were raised and grown up that they weren't taught, you know, like, to you don't talk about that stuff and whatever. So like, they didn't have the emotional space to be able to open that space up for me. (laughs) That's very big of you. 
to say. Um, Thanks. Well, and so I want to, before I get into the questions, when you said that, yeah, you were working for some big media company and then you decided like, oh, right, I need something. Was there something that made you start to be like, oh, right, I guess I need to start building my own name? Like, was that along with the book coming out or something? Or No, no, no. It was, um, I was pregnant and um, with my first child and it was very clear that um, coming back after the pregnancy, um, it was just, it was different. And my role there um, wasn't going to necessarily be the same. And so, and it was like a really beautiful, like easy, because like my time there was coming to an end anyway. Got it. And so it was like a very lovely way to say like, okay, I need to like own my name now and not just give my loan my face and name to someone else. And so that was for was it for a while you were working for a company like prime was it like were you was that you all you were doing during that time too was like yeah I'm yeah, a mental I was health on, expert or I was on camera I was also producing and writing content and um working in the digital space and um yeah it was it was it was really informative and really interesting and I got into it through a friend that I ran into at a college reunion and random. Who, yeah. And you was, never know. You never know. Because like the work you're doing is really fascinating. And we're starting a video division to our editorial company. And we really need like we want people like you to be a part of it. And and it was just a really random but like fascinating turn of events. Again, like nothing I thought that I'd ever be doing. And I thought at that point I'd have like a private practice and I'd you know, be doing all of that um, and working with clients and researching. But I sort of took a little diversion out of curiosity and I just kind of stuck with it for a few years, several years actually. And it was really exciting because we were on the cutting edge of like the digital digital growth of video. And um, it was it was really neat. But, you know, at that point, like there came a point where I was done and um Got it. So then you were sort of like, oh, what do I do now? Because you had been there for several years or not. What do I well, I've been there and I had evolved in the company and it was fine. But they, you know, um, they were growing exponentially and um, we were all sort of still treated like it was a startup. So it was like, you know, kind of one of those things, but they were doing great. And it's a great company. And, you know, we continue to work together. We, they, they had a TV show as well that they had been, we had been producing. So I was an on-camera expert for that. It was great and it was exciting and I learned so much, but then, you know, after my son was born, um, it was clear that, you know, I just needed to do more. I needed to do different things. And I was really like now hunkering down on my path. And, and I think once I had kids, you know, it's like, you don't have the luxury of, energy and time as much as before I had kids. So it's like, what do, what do I really want to be devoting my time to? And what is it that I want to be doing in five or 10 years? Like, you know, and, and it was very, very clear to me that it was time for me to start thinking about my book and to start focusing on my own, you know, practice and working with clients and, and then doing my speaking engagements that I was doing with, with corporate clients and, and, and different, you know, nonprofits and, and all of that. So, and honing my research. So that's really what I devoted my time. So it kind of was a natural like time to go and like, yeah, you'd already had these seeds to do all the things really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And what is, 
And what is your life and um, practice like now? Still well, a mix now, of the things. Well, I mean, we know we're still in what year of pandemic. I know. I don't even know. Now, so I'm working on my second book, which I'm really excited about. Um, I can't disclose the topic, but it'll be, I do believe that it's incredibly, um, it'll be incredibly timely. And um, yeah, I'm excited. And so that's really the bulk of my focus right now. And I'm, I'm doing lots of speaking engagements. I really think the zeitgeist now is like resilience and and how do we learn it? Because we're not born with it. And it's not something that comes from just being a part of trauma or stress. Like, you know, a lot of people who go through stressful times who are not resilient because of them, right? Who are still victims of their circumstances. So I'm really passionate about that and, and doing work with, you know, schools and, and companies on, on training resilient skills. So I do a lot of that right now um, and um, and still do my media work and, you know, here and there. And, and um Taught in, in some discussions to do more. So yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time. And I feel like I'm at a point um, in my career where I feel really, really good about the work I'm doing. And I'm so grateful to be able to have the luxury and time of being able to kind of like pick and choose, you know, what I'm doing and when I'm doing it to also be able to be present with, with our three kids and, and manage all that. And, um, you know, run a household and all that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait to hear what your second book's yeah. going to be about. No, I'll definitely post it. Okay. Let, let's get to the questions I ask everybody. First of all, I sent you um, the images of all the phrases that go on my keychains. And I'd love to hear not necessarily which phrase you like the most, but which one you want as a reminder every day. And then I will send it to you. But which one you're choosing and why? I am here now. I think that that, I think as a society, we have lost our touch with being present. And I think we live in a world engineered to, um, you know, kind of keep us on multiple different wavelengths and not allow us to be present and focused and, and have attention. I think attention is um, really scarce these days. Um, So it's a good reminder for me as, you know, I feel like I'm juggling my work with the kids and this and that and that. And it's like, we only have what we have right in this very moment. And I think it's just an important, such a critical reminder. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I've been noticing like, yeah, the phone usage, my phone usage lately. Cause especially it is like, oh, it's so great. There's all these things on your phone or even like, okay, I'm not gonna be my phone, but then, oh, but I want to use this app for the music or this or whatever. So then it's like back and then I'm back in it. And then I'm like, no, like, so I've lately been like, or just even like, okay, so I'm not working, but now I'm cooking, let me put an app on her, let me put TikTok on her, like that there's always like something in the background that I'm like, okay, uh, this year I'm putting more attention on there being more free space, <laughs> like not like there's this to that, because that, that even it's like, yeah, like even though, I'm, oh, I'm taking a walk and a podcast or music, like even just like I need some like actual blank space where there's not even like background or noise or whatever, like even if it's music that inspires me, like I'm going to need some. Just, like, <laughs> so, so critical and we've totally lost touch with that. So, like hint, hint book number two, but yes. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Then uh, next question is, is what is a go-to or a few go-tos, whatever, to raise your joy levels when you maybe just need a dose of like, all right, like (laughs) let me shift my attitude. Impromptu dance parties. That's a big one. Um, Just turning on like some fun music. And I do that actually a lot uh, with my kids when I sense that things are like getting a little swirly. We also like do like a whole like, wait, pause, let's get our sillies out. So it's kind of like a, 
it's a reminder for me too to just kind of move move my body and 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 be be in the moment. And I think, you know, just for finding joy, my go-to, um, get outside. And I mean, I never come back from moving my body outside, even if it's for five minutes and, and I'm not like ever upset about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's always something like awe is such an antidote to anxiety. And I feel like just having little tiny snippets of like, oh, I hear the birds chirping or like, wow, there's sun on my face. Like that is rejuvenating and definitely like brings me back to the joy because I do think that we all have such joyful moments in our lives, but a lot of us are so busy focusing on everything but the joy that we just miss it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I, I'm with you with like, yeah, it's just like even stepping outside and staring at the sky. Like, yeah, like, and I do all like try to like have like, I now like do what I've called like wonder walks. And I'm sure I'm not the first person that said that. But like, yeah, just like go take a walk and like look at things around you. Like, look at that leaf. Look at that tree. Like, look at that flower. Like, look at the sky. How did that tree get here? Like, (laughs) so good. Yes. Yes. I love that so much. Okay, I ask everybody this question, like how to apply this phrase to yourself, what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it might be like a natural habit way of being what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. Oh my gosh, I feel like that can apply to so many things. Oh my god, where do I even start? Um, The first one that comes to you. What is easiest for me is to binge watch a show on Netflix and triple screen while buying groceries and like answering work emails. But what is best for me is to shut everything down two hours before bedtime and actually focus on real recovery, which is like reading a book and turning down the lights and taking a bath and drinking tea. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm in that too, which I... Totally have been so many shows. I mean, in the last however many years, but really in the last like month or two, like gone hard. (laughs) And I myself was like, I think in some ways I've worked out of my system where I am sort of like, all right. right." Now, like, remember journaling? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I find I've like reached to my body, like, I'll like even reach for my eye, like, to shows. And I'm like, there's nothing left, Trisha. (laughs) I mean, there is, but it's sort of like my capacity. I'm finally like, Right, right, right. Let's get back true, to true, true. your, your oh life. <laughs> Those shows were great. But you know what? They they do serve a time and purpose and they are a form yeah. of recovery, but they're just not really like adequate recovery. And so I think our brain is tricked into thinking that we're we're like letting go and kind of like chilling out, but we're not actually like deeply recovering from our day. And I think that partly not 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 that like Netflix or like on demand streaming content is to blame, but like this constant, you know, ability to do like fill our time with so many different things is a bit to blame for our burnout because it's like, we're not actually recovering adequately um, when we need to. Yeah. That's totally get that. Oh, possibly book thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. The last question is the name of the podcast is claim it. I named it claiming it because I feel like so often we as humans are like chasing these feelings or like, oh, whether it's a chasing success, chasing the feeling of fulfillment, you know, chasing being enough, but that we often don't think about like what that actually feels like. And if we focus on what that feels like, then we have the opportunity to claim it in any moment. And so I'd like to ask you, what are you claiming for yourself right now? I am claiming the ability to focus 
be um, present in the moments I'm present and to um, reduce multitasking. Love it. And yeah, I'm on the same <laughs> wavelength as you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Anything, any last things um, you want to say to the audience? I love it. I mean, listen, I think that a lot of this mental health um, content, it, it, it's, it's hard work, but you're worth it. And you have to put in the time to cultivate new skills and new thoughts and, and how to sort of perceive our world in a different way with a new lens. And at first it's going to feel hard, but eventually once you get into those good habits, it, it won't anymore. And it'll be part of your subconscious and, and life will really change um, for the better. So take, take the time because again, like we waste so much time scrolling through mindless stuff. But if we were just to take like a fraction of that to focus on what we really need to be doing, we would be all so much better off for it. Totally. And that's why my motto is the any minutes is more than no minutes because we often don't start things or do things because it's like, oh, it's like, oh, you can go outside for one minute. You can be focused. Like, yeah, try work on being present for one minute. Like just start with like one minute and then five minutes and then like that. But like so many people don't start or try to change anything because it's going to take too long or be too hard. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Zilana. You can find more from her at drzilana.com and she's Dr. Zilana on social media. Go check out her first book, 21 Days to Resilience. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to hear what her second book is about. We got a little bit of a tip during this conversation. <laughs> Uh, for all things me, you can go to trishahuffman.com. I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman. I also got yourjoyologist.com for my shops, for my app, at yourjoyologist over there. And the podcast itself is at Claim It Podcast. Please share the episode. Let me know that you're listening so I keep going. <laughs> No, really. I absolutely love having these conversations, but it means more when I know people are actually listening and why they're listening and sharing the episode. So I just want you to know that you matter, your feedback matters, your share matters, your DMs matter, your comments on social media posts and just saying, I've listened, matter. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. I know there's so much things, podcasts, shows, music to fill up our days and time with. And I really am grateful that you are spending a little bit with me. All right. For the last thought, what is easiest for you is not always what's best for you. What's coming up for you right now? What is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. You know, I know for me personally, it's time for me to start getting my yoga in in the morning, even a couple minutes. I have not used an alarm in a very long time because I was sleeping poorly for a long time. So automatically waking up early. And then I started sleeping until the perfect time that I need to wake up to get my kids to school, which is great. But it's time for me to set an alarm and give myself any minutes to move my body because I know that'll affect how I feel all day long. So what's easiest for me is to wake up naturally. What's best for me is to set my alarm for even, I'm going to try 15 minutes earlier than my natural wake up time. All right. Love to hear what yours is.